Welcome and thank you for joining us on Faith in Your Recovery. Have a couple of special individuals with us here today. I'm excited and anxious to get into their stories. I want to welcome you, Skip Ackman. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Appreciate your. Uh, oh, we're glad you're here. Jason, Jason Howard, thank you for being here as well. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to uh, speak with you guys today. Awesome. We're looking forward to what you have to share. So let's just get into that right now. Let's go back. Tell us what you were like. Well, let's just go back kind of as 10-year-olds or early teens. What was your life like? Well, for me, I, I had a great family. Uh, mom, dad, uh, two, br- two brothers and a sister, and had a, had a great family. My um, mom and dad were factory workers here in, here in the city of Anderson, and uh, we had the middle, middle-income family, middle-class family, as they call them back then in the days. And... Um, had a you know the normal family life and and did good but you know always growing up as a kid I, I felt different um, for whatever reason not because my mother and father they loved me very very much um, kind of in our household though is like um, my mom and dad loved each other but it's like a silver war sometimes they showed their love outwardly quite a bit um, but they did love each other but uh, that's a little bit about mine I you know yeah. it's it was a I still live in the house that I grew up in. I'm a little bit of sentimental, and uh, but uh, I'm blessed to have a, you know just a gr- had a great family, great growing up, and and uh, that's a little bit about mine. Awesome, awesome. Thanks, Skip. At our house, we call that intense fellowship. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. We can cover it well that way and make it sound a whole lot better than the moment was. Absolutely. All right. So, Jason, would you go back with that same idea and thought, please? You know, growing up, and it's something that uh, anybody that's in recovery, you have to go through and look at your uh, your past and your childhood. And uh, growing up, you know, I look at the 10-year-old me, and coming from Anderson and Madison County, it's like most of those people. My uh, parents were uh, blue-collar factory workers, um, grew up in that environment. But, um, you know, you go back and you think, and there wasn't much that I wanted growing up. I was provided for. I came from a very loving family. There are those things that you look at. You know, you, you can go back and you can say, hey, there's this and that that uh, could have been different. But there's nothing that uh, says, boy, I had a bad childhood. Um, family was great. Like anything else that you grow up into, um, you know, your parents have a relationship, and that relationship can uh, lead to that intense fellowship, as you call. But I was never, uh, never one to not have love and not have that support that was needed. So I'm hearing a lot of similarities up to that age of 10 in both your lives, but I'm going to guess maybe as you grew a little older, that direction between the two of you parents paralleling kind of increased with all of that. So, Skip, uh, kind of move up another 10 years, maybe around the 18 to 20 range of age. Tell us about your life in that area. Sure. You know, going through middle school, then getting in high school, that's when I started uh, experimenting with alcohol. Uh-huh. Um, um, I was... Um, I used to be the one that I had my driver's license in my freshman year because I wasn't the brightest star in school. And not that I was stupid, I wasn't very motivated. I did not want to go to school. I did not, and my, I, I manipulated my mom. She'd always write letters so I can miss school or something. But it, I started, um, I started uh, dabbling in drinking and alcohol on the weekends. Um, I could go get served down at a local rough area, a local bar. Um, they'd serve me at 16 years old. 
And then uh, I was popular with all the friends. I'm a freshman in high school, getting alcohol, getting beer, going to the football field or the dugouts and, and drinking alcohol, experimenting, having a good time in, in our days. That's We had a great time. Um, and then, um, you know, I never got into smoking marijuana or weed or whatever you want to call it today uh, until a few years after that. But I started drinking. And then, um, and then when I took that first drink, I remember going back when I was 15 years old. We were at a family reunion, and it, they were passing moonshine. My mom's from Big Bottom, Tennessee. So they were playing the banjos, the guitars, and, and I had that jug in my hand. I looked over at my mom, and she goes, one won't kill you. So I took a swig of it. And then uh, me and my cousin stu- snuck the rest down in the basement. We drank a little bit more with some RC Cola, which is not a really good mix. Um, you just aged yourself with RC Cola, oh, yeah. by the way. Absolutely. Well, what I found out, man, I felt something happened in me where I felt like I belonged. I had this warmth come down me when the, when the, when the alcohol hit my lips and the warmth came down. It felt like I was at one. I felt like I could talk to people. I felt like a euphoria that I, can, I can't describe that, that's ever happened to me before. So that 15-year-old thing, I kept for years trying to catch that same euphoria, that same of that feeling of awe and stuff. And I did that no matter what happened in my life. And, uh, you know, I went through the, a year or so, and my first suicide attempt was when I was 16 years old. Um, I remember mom and dad found me on the floor. I took a... Um, first breakup with a girl, and I didn't know how to handle that pain, and went to my dad's cabinet. I took as many pills that, that, that was in there, don't know what I was taking, and then went and drank as much alcohol as I could, and uh, which was probably a blessing because I threw up everything I took, all the pills. But uh, that was my first attempt to at suicide, and then, then I just started getting a little bit of trouble. Um, you know, mom and dad didn't know how to handle me. They're from the old school. They just, you know, brushed it off and didn't know what to do with me. Um, that's just a little bit of my alcohol use getting into it and, and just kind of uh, feeling like I was different than everybody until I took that drink. You know, as you mentioned taking that drink and you describes it, you described it as having a feeling of warmth. Absolutely. We had a young lady by the name of Sharman in your seat a few weeks back, and she was telling us her story, and it too began with alcohol. She used that very same phrase. She talked it was just like sunshine coming into your body, not moonshine, yeah, but sunshine, <laughs> that there was a warmth that she had never experienced. And as you said, you started, as they speak of in the addiction world, chasing that dragon, yeah. trying to find that euphoria again, that physically, you're not going to find most of the time because you've released all those endorphins that are just multiple sure. times. And that's what I, you know, for me all my life, and I don't want to get too far what you asked, I sure. was trying to fill those holes in my soul, you know, whether it's alcohol, drugs, sex, or buying material things, or doing those jumping out of airplanes, uh, parachuting, uh, whitewater rafting, getting that for you, and doing all kinds of all kinds of things that I shouldn't have done, taking a lot of chances on my own. We all hunt for a high of some type, and we're going to find it in good ways or ways that aren't so good. Yeah, yeah. Jason, would you kind of fill us in on that part of your life, you know, those late teens, early 20s? You know, at that time in my life, I was very motivated. Um, I knew at that point that I wanted to follow a career in medicine. 
and it was important to me to essentially go down the road that I was going in the EMS realm. Um, I, I remember, and I'll kind of back up a little bit, I was in middle school, and um, I think I was in eighth grade, and in the morning there was a young lady who was a year below me named Jessica Henson, and she came running up the steps that morning. I'll never forget, we're all at our lockers, and she came running up and she collapsed right in front of me and went into cardiac arrest. And I remember watching the teachers and everything at that point in time, trying to do CPR. Well, this was, gosh, this was the late 80s, very early 90s. We didn't even have defibrillators back then. There was a lot of things that were going on. And I remember standing there watching uh, the teacher doing CPR on this young lady and was just in complete distress asking for help. I remember standing there watching and saying, boy, I don't ever want to be in that position again. So I'd set myself up through those pathways to make sure that I was better prepared for that, uh, be it a lifeguard, um, doing those things. When I graduated high school, actually when I was a senior in high school, we worked, um, we had a cadet program with Pendleton Ambulance, where high school seniors got to uh, go take ambulance runs, and I just fell in love with it. But what I didn't realize was, at that age, and what we were seeing and what we were doing, um, didn't adapt, like Skip said, with your mental health. And it wasn't necessarily at substances mm. at that point, because I was still young, um, gung-ho, and I was ready to save the world. And they just gave me all this training and all this good stuff to uh, go out there and do that. So I thought I was on top of it. Um, so at that age range, you know, I thought I had the world just in my hands and I could do anything. Um, and so I adapted through that time and it was very a professional, you know, looking at my professional background and what I wanted to do. So I attended, you know, went to Ball State. I was a runner. So everything in my life was going great until I got on that darn ambulance. And then it just all kind of, uh, when you don't adapt to things, it just kind of goes from there. And so at that age range, when we talk about it, that was kind of, you know, it was the best time of my life as things were picking up. But it was also that time of my life I did not identify properly. Oh, yeah. And it was that time that really led to everything else that had happened over the next 20 some years. Um, so, you know, when we look back on it, you asked earlier about your childhood. Like I said, anybody in recovery digests their whole life. So I've went back and looked at it. But when you ask that period of time, that 18 to 20 age, um, I was on top of the world. But what I didn't realize was the world was getting ready to fall on top of my shoulders. It so. sounds like it. Yes. Uh, we speak of adverse childhood experiences. That wasn't your case. Yours was more adverse young adult. Mm -hmm. or, or whatever without being able to see what it was doing, but it was still eating at your insights. Well, what we find is, you know, and we can go into it later, but if you don't have a solid foundation, as Skip talked earlier, you know, growing up, getting into the alcohol and the drugs early, it comes to that solid foundation. And if you build, kind of like if you build a house, if you build a house on unstable foundation, how long is that house going to stand for? So when I look back on it, I see that I was building the foundation and we weren't building it right. So everything just kind of goes down from that point in my life um, as I look at it. Scripture approaches that the same way where it talks about building your house on the rock, building it on the sand. Sure. Yes. Got to know it has a good base and our life needs that for certain. Skip, a few moments ago, you were sharing about those early suicide attempts. 
for you, were you cognizant enough of what you were doing to think that was a cry for help or was it desperation to get out of your moment? Um, the latter, the desperation, the pain. Um, what I, I wanted the pain gone now. I didn't look five minutes ahead or an hour ahead. I want things now. That's, it, that's my. That's how I am. Would it be right for me to say you didn't want your life gone, but you wanted the pain gone, and that was the only way you could think of to sure. rid yourself that's, of it in those moments? That's exactly what I was thinking. That was my quick fix, and that's how I've been my whole life. I want that quick fix to get rid of that pain right now <sighs> or that instant euphoria. I want it now. Um, that's just been my makeup for years. When I want, you know, when I want something, I want it now. Start off being a selfish kid. Mom and dad had me when they were forties, and it just—they gave me, you know, they—they they spoiled me. Um, not to their fault. They thought they were doing the right sure. thing. But that's just been—I—I I just wanted the pain gone. I wanted it gone. I didn't care how it got gone. But that was my only thought, my only avenue that I thought I had to get rid of that pain is just to not be in this world anymore. Yeah, yeah. Society and culture often point their words at those uh, struggling with addiction and say, get over it. You know, they snap their fingers and think it ought to be gone, that you can drop it that quick. But it sounds like you're making it pretty clear that it doesn't happen. There's not instant gratification for recovery. There may be instant gratification in getting the next high, but then the struggle that follows. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, then. Move us on up in your life, if you would, please, those next stages. Sure. I was. Uh, I knew in 19 and 20 that, that I needed discipline. I thought about joining the Marines, and my dad was a World War II vet. He had the Purple Heart and brought, never talked about the war. I remember going through our picture door, drawer like a lot of people have, and I used to find pictures of dead bodies from over there, World War II, uh, Japan, um, Korea, because um, he was in Korea, too. And I never asked about them. I just looked at them because I'm a kid. I'm just looking through these things. And Dad never talked about the war growing up. But I remember I wanted to be in the Marines, and Dad did not want me to go into service. He just did not want me to go to the service. Well, my brother, my uncles, my cousins were all firefighters. Um, then my other brother was a police. He turned in and be a police officer. So I gravitated, and when I was 19 years old, I went through fire academy, which is nothing what it was today. I mean, if I went through academy today, I wouldn't make it. I'm not, I wasn't that intelligent. That's not ripping me down. That's just where I, my intellect was back then. Um, I made. I went through when I was 19. I graduated that, but I couldn't get hired on until I was 21. From 19 to 21, I started uh, drawing, uh, being a phlebotomist, uh, dr- working a private ambulance service, got me in teeth certification, and I wanted to rescue people. You know, I think that was part of me I was in so much pain, I didn't want anybody else to be there. And I seen, like Jason, I seen certain events that I wanted to be that hero in somebody's life. I wanted to take that pain and rescue them. And I couldn't do it for me. The insanity of it, I didn't know what to do for me. And there's people out there might love me that wanted to help me. I can't say nobody wanted to help me because that's just not true. Sure. I wanted to do things my way. And when I was 22, I got hired on the fire department. I was on, it was called uh, 32 back then, 32 and 33. We had two uh, medic units here. Just had medics, had four medics on the Anderson Fire Department, and they just came on three months before I came on. Well, I started riding the ambulance, and I'm going to rescue everybody in my mind. August 6, 1988 was my first day. Um, 
through that first two weeks, I was seeing stabbing, shootings, and little children dying. I didn't know how to handle that. Here I am, or set myself up to be this hero, and people are dying in my arms. I remember the first time I'd done CPR. I remember where it was. I remember hearing the rigs crack as I pushed down on the chest. I remember what the nurse says when we took that person to the ER, like it was yesterday. And that's been all my runs. And I, I relive those for many years. And the only way that I could figure out how to get rid of it <laughs> is going at 9 o'clock in the morning, getting a bottle of alcohol, getting drunk, passing out, getting up, shooting up cocaine to stay awake, drink more, and do the same thing over and over again. And I, I, I used all kinds of medications, whereas LSD, speed. Um, then I started smoking weed. Didn't like it, but I did it. Um, trying to, and then I used to be one of those people. I was a cutter. I'd set my one-room apartment and just start cutting myself. Through my, I got scars all over my body. I got cigarette burns all, all over my body because I didn't know how to get rid of that pain, and I didn't know how to reach out. Nobody at work. I used to be dramatic and say, you know, they used to say, suck it up, buttercup. That was my perception oh, yeah. of what I thought they were saying. They didn't say that. If I would have reached out, I know they would have helped me. But I didn't know how to reach out. We didn't have peer support like we do today. And I remember drinking and doing things I thought I was crazy. I did a lot of crazy things at fires. I took chances I shouldn't have took chances on and been hauled to the hospital when the roof collapsed on me when I shouldn't be in there and did some other things. So that's been my year from August 6, 1988. My first treatment was in 89, six months after I was on the Anderson Fire Department. Divorced, married again, um, in and out of treatments in the 90s, and uh, just trying to search for that peace, search for something. I didn't know what I was searching for. And then at that time, I didn't believe in... My the my my mom and dad believed in God, but I didn't. They didn't push anything on us really. They didn't have us go to church. I went with my neighbors, which was a blessing. I didn't know it at the time, but I remember denouncing that there was a God. I said, if there's a God in this world, how could these kids die in my arms? How could this destruction and burn people burn up? So I denounced that. I used to read the Satanic Bible. I used to go to Camp Chesterfield. And I used to do a lot of crazy things. A lot of things that that if I told everybody what I did, they'd probably have me locked up somewhere. Um, so that got me to the point where I had no way out. Then the suicide attempts came more and more and the planning. I used to carry a 44 Magnum Smith & Wesson with me with one with a bullet in, in there, hollow point. And I remember picking that up and I'd shake and then I'd put it down because I still had a little bit in me. First time I went to treatment, I called a nurse I was dating. I said, I gotta kill, I'm gonna kill myself. I said, I can't be here no more. I wanted her to say something to me. And I had the gun, and I had it. It was a rifle, and I put it into my head. And I was, had my finger, and I was waiting for her to say something. I didn't know when I was talking to her. She had my brothers. They got them on the phone, and they came over and got me and took me to my first treatment. Um, thank God for unanswered prayers. Wow. Just a click away. Yeah. Literally. And, and a lot of times I can be dramatic. I try to be real what it was. I know where I was. There was that moment, five minutes, I didn't care one way or the other. I just didn't care. I was done. I was done falling down and keep getting back up. I couldn't get up anymore. I was tired. Oh, I can't imagine the exhaustion. My mother was a suicide. I was mm. 23 years old. 
I still feel that to this day and can describe those moments of pulling in the drive, getting the news, finding out everything that took place. A tragic death, and all losses are tragic. I don't want to downplay anything, but those unexpected tragic deaths, the healing comes in a very different way, and I'm not sure it ever totally comes. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and to think that for you, that desperation, that lack of hope, that, you know, as you were talking there with your earlier career with the fire department, and you talked about losing that child in your arms, I'm sure there's not a lot of training for that. TV has nothing for that. We don't see that aspect on TV. We see the hero carrying somebody out who makes it. And to go through that, the wear and tear, I can't imagine. Hollywood does a great job in sexing up what they think first responders do, but they do nothing to truly go to the emotional aspects and those scars that you carry every day. So, you know, when Skip talks with that, I feel that myself and go through my my career and my years and and everything comes down to the scars that you're holding and it comes down to that stigma. You know, we can all go back to the firehouse after a run and all the guys be there and be, you know, are you good, everything okay, or suck it up. But it's that stigma, it's that alpha mentality that they all carry. And you carry that deep in you. Well, those scars at some point are going to come out. And that is the side that, like I said, they do not really get into to discuss for all our first responders and what they carry. Jason, go ahead and tell us a little more of your personal journey, please. I, um, you know, as we get into it, I, I really fell in love with, like, like Skip said, being there, being of service to others, being that hero. Um, and so I had went to Ball State, um, was getting my business degree, was working part time on an ambulance and just loved it and decided, hey, I, I, this is what I want to do. And so while I was attending classes during the day at Ball State, I ended up getting going to night classes, getting my paramedic uh, license, and uh, just fell in love with it. And that was the direction I went. Um, through that, again, I just thought I was the hero. I was going to go out and save the world. I'm young, and, and nothing can hurt me. I remember my very first run as a paramedic, and I was actually just filling in. Um, was there for two hours in the morning filling in. I wasn't even on the schedule yet as a paramedic. Heck, my ink was still wet on my license (laughs) and um, was just sitting there. And I'll never forget, we got a call. It's probably 7.30 in the morning and it was a car accident. And at that point in time, especially in this area, there were very few medics. Like Skip said, when he came on, there was only four medics for Anderson Fire Department. Well, the county kind of runs the same way here in Madison County in that we have all these volunteer departments that are all just kind of basic life support. So when something happens, they call to have a medic come out. Well, in this instance, we essentially got called to go out and pronounce this person dead who was in the car. And so here I am, young, very first run as a medic. I've had some time under my belt, but this is me. You know, they called for me and 
And uh, so the responsibility's there, and I never thought about it or put much into it. But we show up, and here's this, uh, here's this car accident. The roof's off of the car. There's this young lady, pretty young lady, sitting in the driver's seat. And everything's just discombobulated. Like the firefighters looked at it and truly thought she was dead. So, you know, the efforts they were putting in to try to extricate her out, but there maybe not been that care there. So I'll never forget, I put her on the monitor and I found electrical activity. And so when we look at those things, when we have electrical activity, she's not dead. We need to work her and do what we have to do. So I'll never, even to this day telling this story, I can still feel that pit in my stomach from when I put that on and saw that and thought, oh my gosh, now I have to do action. I have to do something. And this is the first time I've been encountered with a run on my own as a medic. And here I have a traumatic arrest that uh, we've got to turn everything around. So long story short, we've got the young lady in the, the ambulance, got her to the hospital. Well, when I got her to the hospital, we had return of spontaneous circulation. So essentially, we got her heart going again and delivered her to the ER. And to me, that was a save. I was just ecstatic. My first run, I was able to accomplish that and kind of rode that high uh, for the afternoon or for the morning. But I'll never forget, it was a couple hours later, I had to take a run back into the ER, and the nurse pulled me aside, and I said, hey, you know, how is so-and-so? The nurse said, well, she didn't make it. You know, we, we, she stayed around for about three hours, and then she didn't make it. And I felt horrible. As I was walking through the ER, this young lady's mother, she pulled me aside. And uh, I remember hugging her and saying, I am so sorry so sorry for what happened. She was, she had a smile on her face and she had told me that, um, you know, what I gave her was the best thing that she ever could have gotten. Because that morning when this young lady left the house to go to school, the last words that they both said to each other was, I hate you. And that mother started crying and she said, you gave me three hours, so that wasn't my last memory. And here I am, this young kid. I don't, I think I understand the world. I think I understand what I'm doing. And right there in that moment, I had no clue what just happened. I had all this emotion, all this pain, all this thing that, you know, you work hard and try to save this life. She doesn't make it. But then the mother comes back and says, thank you. You gave me something so much more powerful. And so what I learned early was it's in those little moments that you're going to get, but it's in those moments that are so confusing that you have to deal with in your emotions. And this was what the career turned out to be, that, you know, you get on an ambulance, you go out here and do this. And we, you know, you can start the day off, start your shift off. You can go out and deliver a baby, have the, the best high in the world because you just brought life into this world. And then as you progress through your day, it's all these different emotions. Pronouncing, uh, you know, a husband who was in cardiac arrest to his wife of 50 years. So it's going through these things. But what you never get to do in that 12 or 24 hour period is truly digest. <sighs> what you're doing. Because as soon as I leave one run, I've got about 10, 15 minutes, and then I'm sent to the next one. So you never process, you encapsulate a lot. You know, in that shift, you can go through doing that from delivering the baby to the car acts, to the routine runs, to the drug overdoses, and then you can, fi you can finish your shift out to that baby that you just delivered. 
is now passed away or there's something like that. So it's 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 a lot that goes into it. And I go back to that foundation. If you didn't have a solid foundation, well, through your career, you're going to have that shakiness. And that's kind of what set me up. And that's what I was following through was seeing these things and think I was doing the greatest, but I didn't know the, the ramifications of where it was. And one day, you know, that just sneaks up on you. And it's very tough. But, you know, we... I didn't necessarily in the beginning go looking for substances because I thought I could handle it and I thought I was above it. And then it became all powerful and we're doing these things. We're running around the city, lights and sirens, hair on fire, and you go from one rush to another. Well, Skip said it best. When you don't have that rush at work, you've got to start finding it in your personal life. So you start taking risk because when we do what we do as first responders, there's a lot of risk in that. And you're walking into things that you have no clue and you don't know if you're going to be able to go back home or back to the station and put your boots back on and go home at the end of the shift. So when you're not doing that, you find those other things. Well, what I'd found through that was we really liked partying as a group. We're a young bunch of kids, so we were in the bars constantly. You know, as time progressed, it would be nothing that, um, you know, the group of us would be out at the bar at night, close the bars down, go to an after party, and then we'd all show up for shift in the morning. And then we'd put IVs in ourselves, so we we dehydrated, so we'd have yeah. IVs in ourselves. Yeah, it, it would be nothing to, you know, walk into the station with your beer in your hand, put it in the refrigerator at the station, and then you all go to the day room, and, and you're laying around. And then you're throwing IVs in, trying to hydrate. And then when runs came in, I don't know if this worked for you or not, Skip, but then when runs came in, it was almost like you were drawing straws to see who was the soberest or who was the least hungover to go take that call. That sets up a real bad foundation. But as we talk, or as I've talked to a lot of people in the field, Skip and I's story isn't that different from what a lot of people you know, say, because it is. It's this adaptation of your emotions, and how do you do that? And so, ultimately, when you get into that, that, uh, that space or that field, well, your personal relationships start falling apart because you don't necessarily know how to adapt. So you start seeking out things that you think you know you want. When in actuality, like I said, we come back, you're on a faulty, on a faulty line and you, you really don't know what you're doing or where your head's at. So that was kind of my start leading into the downfall of what I say is, you know, that led me into where I'm at today in my recovery and, and what we had to do to to adapt and make things work. What I want to do is respond to a couple of things you said there, and then I'd like to ask you both to share that, what you believe is your one darkest moment in that. Then we're going to start to climb the mountain instead of tearing it down, okay? And we'll build things back up. But as you were sharing so much of your taking care of this situation, not having time to process that, digest it, I think is what you said, and move Moving on to the next one, did all this become just a another form of PTSD that that trauma built up such that eventually it had to start to come out, and that would be through the drinking, the parties, and whatnot? Absolutely. And the problem is, 
early in the career, and I know I think Skip can attest to this too, early in our career, we didn't deal with mental health. Mental health was not something that you talked about. And either you were strong enough to do the job or you weren't, but you didn't show weakness. And so PTSD was not something that we talked about. Exactly. It, it was that thing where you didn't want to discuss it, you didn't recognize it, and you just kept moving forward. Because when you <laughs> you work in a glass house, and especially as a paramedic, it's, it's very much a glass house that when you walk in, everybody watches what you're doing. There's a lot of pressure just even in that, but the last thing you want to do is show that weakness because if you say, I'm weak, I'm beat up, this doesn't hurt, then you feel like you lose the appreciation of the guys around you. You feel like the, if you show up to a run, they're not going to support you or, oh, I'd rather have this other medic here. So you always have to carry this almost fake facade through it, and it gets to be where it's life that you don't think about it more of those stigmas and biases, and I, I am thankful we have come so far. We can use the words mental illness, mental health now, yes. whereas there was a time you had to whisper that about someone that nobody wanted it identified, though they knew it was there. Well, and it's still, it's still a big stigma, and it's always going to be a stigma, but I can say over the last five years, We've done so much as a society, as a profession, to break that stigma down and say, okay, it's okay to not be okay as exactly. long as you are getting that help. And I think that's with the new generation of, of people that were coming in. And in public safety, you have what I call the 25-year cycle. About every 25 years, you start processing in a younger group of candidates and start coming in. Well, with this younger group, I think they're a little bit more adaptive than what we used to be. So it makes it a little easier, but it's still something that it's very, you know, it, it affects a lot of people. And, and we do got to break those stigmas down and say, okay, how do we help this so you can continue to help others? We're winning some of the battles, but not the war yet. Hopefully, we'll get there. Let's go back to what I just mentioned. Mentioned. Share with us, if you will, one of your darkest moments, and then start us up the hill to your, to the victory you're experiencing now. It doesn't mean you're all the way there. We know recovery is not a, you know, it's it's a it's a journey, not a destination. But tell us how you're getting close to that destination. For me, it's been like a, a big roller coaster at times. Um, you know, my last drink, I remember the, the dark, ooh, the darkest moment when I was hopeless. It was February 7th of 2000. It was 7.30 at night. I was, uh, my, I damaged, w the way I drank alcohol, I downed whiskey. I didn't drink beer. I just downed whiskey, bottles at a time, half pints, because I, I just didn't like the taste. I liked the effect. I damaged the top part of my uh, stomach from doing that. And I remember... I remember going in the hallway. I tried to drink a half pint, and it wouldn't stay down. It came back up. And then I've been in and out of 12-step um, group for 11 years, been in four treatment centers. And then finally it came to head, and I looked at my wife, and I had that emptiness in my soul, my eyes. And I said, I can't do it no more. I said, can you yeah, call Ted? That, that was a, a sponsor of mine back then. And um, 
I need help. And uh, she uh, loaded me up in the van, and I didn't know. And uh, on the way to the hospital, I, I told her I was shooting up cocaine, too. She never knew any of that. And um, something changed about her a month before that, though. I don't know what it was. Something she kept getting on. She quit getting on me, and she just kind of let me go. And I went and got—that was the darkest time back then in 2000. Um, you know— and then my story continues. I got sober and did a, a lot of different things. And then uh, another dark moment, you know, even being sober and doing what I was supposed to do, um, living life. And life got better working the 12 steps. And uh, I, I did real good and, and uh, got involved in the community work. And I'm one of those guys uh, that I stay busy. And that's what my sponsors told me a long time ago, stay busy. And I did that. Um, Three years ago, or three and a half years ago, I found out something about my life, and then the darkness came back. And I was working the steps. I was no longer an atheist. I, I believe in, I believed in God, but the doubts started coming in. The doubting Thomas. The then I started. Uh, you know, I, I'm not proud of this. I started cheating on my wife, and I knew it was wrong, but I'm still trying to fill that hole because that plug came undone, and my my spirituality, my mental health started leaking out. And I couldn't get it plugged in myself again, and I didn't know how to do it. And I was too embarrassed because I was on the board for Indiana for American Foundation of Suicide Prevention. Um, here I was on our peer support for the fire department, and I'm supposed to be this guy that people look up to. And here I am cheating on my wife, and I'm thinking, I don't want to be alive anymore. I went through this in the 90s. Why? I'm tired of it. That's when I told this story before them uh, uh, earlier about uh, some people saw some things in me. James Harless, he uh, came up to me and said, man, you're, you're changing. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to—I said, I'm okay. And then he kept pushing it because he'd been through these safe talk classes that I pushed them through, set up to go through. So uh, he said, are you okay? Are you, you okay? And I, I said, No. He goes, are you thinking about killing yourself? I said, James, I wouldn't do that to my family. Well, 20 years ago, I had a firefighter say the same thing to me. He ended up dying by suicide. That came back at that time. And then I, I broke down and I said, and this, I said, I want to I wanna blow my brains out. I don't want to be in this world. I'm tired. I'm tired of putting a show on for everybody. I'm tired of being this person that I'm not. I'm cheating on my wife. I'm not the father I should be, the grandfather I should be. I'm not a friend that I should be. I'm the biggest hypocrite in the world, and I'm just tired. I just want to go. And that started the process. You know, even though I was sober from drinking and drugging, I, I did never dealt with the PTSD, as Jason said earlier. I never dealt with that depression, deep depression. Even though I'd seen counselors, but I never dealt into it when my granddaughter passed away and I held her in my arms. Or those little kids that burn up that I still cannot see that scene today, and I was right there. I still cannot see them today. I end up uh, through Brandon Dryman, a firefighter in Indianapolis, uh, it worked out a bunch of circumstances, got me the Center of Excellence in Maryland for firefighters with PTSD and depression. Um, I went through a lot of traumas for the last 33 years that, that I had never dealt with. I was there for 42 days, just dealing on trauma. And then um, I remember dealing with my my granddaughter's death, and what they the process that they took me to where I needed to go. So 
that started a light. I got honest with my wife about my affair, and we went through family counseling and, and stuff like that, and I didn't know where it was going to happen. Um, things worked out. I'm here today wanting to be alive. I'm not a hypocrite saying I want to be alive when in secret. I, want to, I don't want to be here anymore. I'm able to be a part of a, of a group, the Worldwide Peer Support, because I went, went to that um, treatment facility. I met firefighters all over the United States and also met a, a gentleman from England, a paramedic, and we started an organization called Worldwide Peer Support, where we help firefighters, EMS workers all over the United States and England. I'm able to be a part of an organization here in Madison County and now Turning Point in Madison County to be able to help people with mental health and addiction. And do it in a balanced way. I can't save anybody, but I can guide them to save themselves. Amen. So that's cooperating with you is Brianna's Hope and Bridges Hope and the Christian Center. And and uh, that's what I'm here to do. I'm just part of the body. Even though I might be that doubting Thomas still, and I'm real honest about that, I do believe in God. I do pray to God. I have Christ in my life. But sometimes I don't see it all the time. The, the idea of the doubting Thomas... I have respected him as much as anyone because of his honesty. Uh, he laid out what many of the disciples there may have been thinking. He was one of those, like you were saying earlier, Jason, you don't want to admit that weakness because if you do, what's everybody else going to think? Am I no longer going to be a part of the team? Are they going to turn another direction? What, you know, we're scared of honesty sometimes because we don't know what it's going to create. So we make up those stories to cover, whether it's the pain or the loss. And Skip, you got back into the PTSD idea. I think everybody has a form of PTSD. Uh, it may not be to the degree of someone else, and I'm not trying to downplay those who have, who have struggled with it from the military. I have a world of respect for them. But it's, it's a real thing. I mean, it's a people thing. It's a part of life. We just need to know where to go to be able to, to work through it and to work with it. So why don't you, if you will, Jason, much like Skip, kind of bring us up to date in your world, please. Well, what I had found over my 20-some years was we didn't adapt to mental health. I found myself in just a real low. Um, no matter, you know, you try to be positive, you try to keep moving, but what I found was even my personal life was falling apart. Um, I wasn't able to be emotionally in the relationship in my marriage. Um, I might have married the wrong woman and she might not have been where she needed to be with mental health. Um, but what had, what had transpired through my career was it got overwhelming. And even though I found out that I was the happiest I'd ever been professionally, I was the worst I'd ever been mentally and personally. You know, you can go out and do all these great things. You can have this great job. You can go out in the world and do, do wonderful things. But if you go home to your castle at the end of the day and you don't have that security, what is it all worth? 
And so what I had found through my career was I'd gotten into drugs. I'd gotten into alcohol. I was trying to numb the pain, um, marijuana, pills. And then it all culminated when I started getting into the narcotics on the ambulance. And it came down to trying to just find that. And it truly was just a moment of, as I like to describe it, just that instant relief and then you know you you find that and you chase it but what you realize at the end of the day was it didn't give you what you needed and it only combinated to more aspects so what i had done was you know i was in a situation where i'd lost faith in the 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 lord i was kind of wandering around aimlessly doing what i felt i needed to do but inside i was beat up and death was one of my biggest fears. So to sit and say I was suicidal or actually had a plan to kill myself, I did not. But when I looked back on it, what I saw was all that drug use, all the things that I did were really me trying to kill myself in a roundabout way. And what I'd found was through that, I'd actually carried a bullet in my pocket. I'd pull that bullet out and I knew I had two things. I could either put it in my head or I could bite it and move forward. And thankfully that bullet never found its way to my head and I was always able to overcome. But I had, you know, towards the end of my career, I'd reached out to my employer and said, look, I'm in a bad spot. Everything's falling apart. I'm into the narcotics. I'm into some issues. I need help. We sat for several hours talking. They offered all the support and all this help. Well, what I found two months later was there was no support there as the state police came and was arresting me in my driveway. And it was at that point that I knew I got to take care of this. I've got to find where my safety net is. I've got to do what it takes because nobody's going to do it for me. I put myself here. I will get myself out of that. And so through all those things happening, I pushed really hard to correct that mental health side of it. How do I adapt to it? How do I overcome the substance and the addiction? How do I put myself in a favorable light to me and the Lord? I didn't care about anybody else. I didn't care what I did what they saw or how people reacted. All I cared about was, what do I do to overcome this? And if I overcome this, people will come around, but it's about me first. It's not about showing others. So I went through a period of about a year where it was truly sitting down and digesting my life. Started writing a book more than anything, just for me, just to get it on paper and to get it out. And it was that therapeutic component. Uh, found myself in therapy still to this day. You know, I'd be I'd be lost if it wasn't for my therapist. And and it's amazing the circles in uh, society as Skip and I both share some of the same uh, practicing uh, doctors and therapists that have, you know, been there to help us both. But that's what it came down to was that light has to go off and you have to say, I'm not in a good spot. And if I don't change that, I'm going to be under the ground and who can I help then? You know, you mentioned having that bullet in your pocket 
and uh, you could either use it or you could bite it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to guess it probably had a lot of teeth marks in it symbolically. It, that uh, you'd reach into your pocket and dig another notch into it. Is that accurate? It was about every hour I had that thing in my hand, <laughs> just thinking. Because when you get to that downward progression, when that's the spot you get into, you can't see anything else but the depression, but the substance abuse, the negativity. You know, you start looking at your relationships that you had beforehand, and all you can find in them is the negativity. Well, nothing works out in that. So it's about trying to eliminate, as I call it, the crisis. Because when we live in crisis, we search crisis out in our personal lives because that's what we know. And it's not until you can overstep that and realize that there is a balanced life out there, that there are there are things worth living for. And, you know, that, that situation that puts you into that improper mental health aspect, you can overcome that. And that was the biggest thing for me was to say, I'm more powerful than what I'm faced with in front of me. And how do I overcome that? And how do I achieve success? And then ultimately take that and say, now, how can I help others? Yes. Because if your heart, you know, doing what we do, it's about being of service to others. And so you still want to carry that with your heart. So for me, that was the most powerful thing, turning this, shifting it, and how do I give back still with what has happened to me? Yes, yes. You commented there about that darkness. One of the the premises of which A Better Life, Brianna's Hope, works on is we're not going to yell into your darkness and give you directions to come out. We're going to walk in there and help lead you out. You made a statement, something like, you can't see the light. Basically, you don't know which way to turn. So we've got to be there with each other and for each other to the best of our abilities. Let's kind of wrap this up with one final question I'd like to address to both of you. The name of our podcast, Faith in Your Recovery. In your own words, what do those four words mean to you? (laughs) You know, before I had faith, and I'm still learning, you know, I'm I'm still learning, being open-minded. I would not be here um, if I didn't have faith or recovery, either one. They they accompany, they intertwine with each other uh, for me. Um, I I, I go back to the book of James. That's what I I gravitated to when uh, my neighbor that— Strongest man I know in my life. He was paralyzed from the neck down. I've been through him all my life. He's the one that brought me to Christ. I could not see God, but I could see God through him in a wheelchair. So when I read the book of James, it talks about faith without works is dead. And I think I can have all the faith in the world, and I'm not going to repeat all the Bible. You guys know it better than I do. But what comes to me, I can have all the faith in the world, but I have to have works that follows that. Amen. So my my thing is, I think what I do is try to do do the works, and that shows other people where my faith is. Because there's a lot of things that I do, I don't want to do it. But in my when God and Christ gets in my heart and gives that conviction, it's like, I don't want to load a bunch of wood and take it down to those guys, homeless guys, because I might be enabling them. I don't want to do that. 
There's those Christian centers right here. Go to there. But I load the wood in the truck. Two in the morning, I'm pitching wood at 10 below zero, and I'm, I usually grab somebody to come with me, and that's what I do. Yeah. Or I go take the trash out for my wife. The little things in life that she likes. It's like I'd done worlds for her. So it's not all the big things I do in my life. It's the little things that I do for my own family. Because if I'm not treating my own family, what is that? Exactly. Because I used to be the kind of guy, I wanted these old pat on the backs. I want to be in the newspaper, look at me, be on the channel news, which I've looked at me. But that's not, that's not recovery. That, that's not humility. Um, what I have to do, and I'm, I'm a big tape recorder. I'm either repeating what I've read or what I've heard or what God inspired in me. It's nothing original with me. Um, I think service to people, to God and people about me. That's faith in action, and that helps my recovery and extending uh, an olive branch to somebody else to come out of that dark room. Amen. So Well answered. How about it, Jason, that same question? What do the four words faith in your recovery mean to you? Well, the first thing is we got to break down the word faith. That has significance in all things because, like Skip said, it's, it's not just faith in the Lord. It's faith in yourself. It's faith in who you are and who you represent to the people who are around you. Now, like I said, when, when I was working, I had lost my faith. I had had disagreements with the Lord. I grew up in the church, and the church, you know, I was always told there's a reason. The Lord has a reason for everything. But when you pull a baby out of the microwave at 3 in the morning, what's the reason for that? What's the reason for all the violence that you see? And it wasn't until I got away from it and really started looking at myself that I found, well, number one, the Lord was using me as a vessel of himself to help these people. And that's what he put me here for. And as soon as I, I, I came to that realization, my faith came back. And I found that I am powerless over all things unless I have a relationship with the Lord. And having that relationship, he's going to bless me and guide me to where he needs me to be in the stage of my life and the stage of this world. And when I looked back on it, I saw that throughout my other throughout everything. And I never realized it at that point. I was so angry and bitter that society and the world and the Lord and all these things could happen. And here I am trying to go out, do these good things. You know, while I may be Narcan and a drug overdose patient, I've got substances in my system myself and I'm looking down at this person. And it takes coming back to say, okay, we're all one person in the Lord's eyes. We've got to show to each other the humanity that there is in the world. And you have to show the honesty and the integrity of, number one, who you were, where you've been, and what you've done. And as soon as you realize that you're powerless to that, the Lord will lift you back up and you will find your faith. So every day I wake up blessed. I wake up blessed that I woke up breathing. That's the first thing. I thank the Lord every day. Thank you for giving me this day. Because what I realize is life is finite. Amen. There is an end date. You can go through this life and not truly live it and come to the end of your days. And, and I was with a lot of people 
at the end of their days, and they all said the same thing. I wish I would have. Now, what that I wish I would have was could be multitude of different aspects. But it's still that fact that they've all said the same at the end of their life. And it comes back to look at that and say, I don't want to live that. I want to know that I've done the very best I can do. I've been the very best representative of myself, of the Lord, of my faith, and go out there and still give to the others that may have been in the spot that I was, that their faith, their religion is not there. There aren't the people there to care for them, that if you lift one person up each day, then the power in that is so extreme that you get to live just you just feel a fullness inside of you. Thank you both. I I don't want to be a spectator. I want to be in the game. I was telling my wife the other day, every day I wake up thinking, hoping, praying, I've got one more good game in me, that today's going to be the best day I've ever lived just after living the best day of my life the day before or living in a hole the day before. They come to everybody. It's not just an addiction-related kind of thing to have a flat tire, to have a, a leaky water faucet at home. It's called living. Celebrate it. There are some who can't. Again, Skip, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Randy. Jason, thank you as well. Thank you so much. I, uh, I'm honored to be a part of this podcast today, and thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. It's been our pleasure and the pleasure of our audience. Before I close out here, folks, I want to make you aware of something. As I said here, look at these two guys. I realize that you walk down the street. Let me tell you, they're both pretty normal looking, okay? Uh One of them may be a little shaky, but I'm not mentioning which one. But regardless, if you were to walk by them on the street, you wouldn't go, oh, I bet he's the one that just told that story on faith in your recovery. So know this, the next person you face on the street may be in a battle as well. Help them fight it. Help them win it. Thank you. God bless you.